We're going to be looking at seal 5, 6, and 7 today, but seal 5, the emphasis is on the martyr, those that are martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ, for their devotion to Him, for their faith in Him, for their testimony about Him, for the gospel. Martyr really means witness, and this seal emphasizes those that were witnesses that were faithful even unto death, and it focuses on their cry out to God and their question of when He's going to do something about their faithful witness and what that resulted in, which was their martyrdom. And Seal 5 is, is definitely something that is difficult uh, to, to read and to think about and um, difficult even in, in what we hear as far as a response, uh, but it's, it's important and it teaches us a lot. And so Seal 5, we're going to look into that, and that comes to us from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And so I hope that you will um, follow along in your copy of God's Word, whether that's uh, book form or digital. And let's look into this together as we continue on in our study of Revelation, what Revelation reveals. And particularly today, we're, we're going to be looking at these broken seals, the seals that are, are broken by the only one worthy to do that, the Lamb, the Son of God, our Savior. This is Broken Seals Part 2 today. Seal number 5 is where we're starting, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. John, still recording, writes this, When he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. And that's the testimony of Jesus. That's the gospel. Because of the testimony of Jesus they had given. And this this scene that John sees here and records, uh, this points to the sacrifices killed on the altar under the old covenant, under the old priesthood. When a sacrifice was killed on the altar, its blood flowed down to the bottom of the altar and under it. And so the fact that the souls of the martyred saints are under the altar, John sees that happening, that indicates a very precious, beautiful truth. That indicates that in the sight of God, the death of His martyred ones, His martyred saints, they are precious sacrifices. They're holy. And He honors them. He values them. He accepts them. They're cherished by Him. In verse 10 there's, this is what the, the martyred souls do. They, they say something. They, they respond. Verse 10 tells us this. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? It's a fair question, right? How long until something's going to be done about this? Are you just going to sit idly by? How long until you do something? Verse 11 says, So they were each given a white robe, which 
is signifying righteousness and purification. It also signifies the fact that they are victorious. They overcame. That's been promised to uh, many of the churches. We, we spent a lot of time reading the seven letters to the seven churches. And again and again and again, Jesus' promise was, to those that overcome, I will give a, a white robe, a robe of righteousness. A robe of the overcomer. A robe of the victorious. So they were given that. They were given this white robe of victory because they were faithful to the end. They did overcome. And they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. They got an answer. But it's an answer that many of us, if not most of us, don't like. From little children all the way up to the older. And that's wait. (laughs) We don't like that word, do we? We don't like that concept. Wait. I hear you, but wait. The answer is not now. Not yet. That's a difficult answer. And many of you understand that. Many of you, for... Various reasons, across multiple years, you've been asking God something similar. When? When are you going to show up? When are you going to do something about what I'm going through? When are you going to answer this need? When are you going to address all the injustice that I see around me and all the injustice I've experienced personally? When? 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 Many times, the answer is not yet. And that's a difficult answer to hear. But that's nonetheless what the answer was for these martyred souls. And there was a qualifier given to that answer. The reason why you're going to have to wait to receive and to see and to experience this justice that you do rightly deserve to have is because the full number of the martyred hasn't come yet. There's more to come. That's what Jesus said in answer. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to rest a little long. You're going to have to trust me a little long. You're going to have to just rest in me and with me until the number will be completed. So there's a set number. There's a determination in God's sovereignty and His perfect plan that there will be more, that there will be fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, who are going to be killed in the manner they were. In other words, there will be more martyrs to come. These saints here that John sees represented as being under the altar, recognizing their accepted sacrifice, these saints are most likely people that come to Christ once the tribulation starts and have already been killed by Antichrist and by His people, by His government. Uh, That's the immediate context. But, it's possible, and and I I definitely see this as fitting, that this represents all the martyred throughout not just even the church age, but even back farther into the Old Testament. Think of the prophets who were martyred at the end of their persecution they paid with their life. Think of John the Baptist. Think of Stephen, the first martyr of the church age. Peter and James. 
and others, countless others, all the way up through uh, even to our present day. The last decades have been full of, of martyrdom. We don't, unfortunately, and shame on us, we don't pay enough attention to that like we should. But martyrdom is, is a present reality, church. Praise God, in His grace and mercy, we haven't experienced that personally. But you don't have to look very far across the map to know that it's very much a present reality that our brothers and sisters experience right now, this very moment in other parts of the world. So it's entirely possible that along with this group of tribulation martyred, that what John saw and what is represented goes all the way back to uh, in- include many throughout the, the history of the church and even before the institution of the church. It really is a beautiful thought that God sees every single one that gave their life in devotion to Him, and He sees it as precious, and He keeps a record of it, and He stores up justice for them. There's something else that this scene shows us, something else that it teaches us and communicates to us, and that's this. There's nothing wrong with asking God why and when, as long as you remember He is sovereign and He is good. And it wouldn't be enough for Him just to be sovereign. If He was not a good, perfect sovereign, then we would be in trouble. We would be in big trouble. But because of the fact that our great sovereign is also a perfect sovereign and a very good one, that means we can trust Him. That means we can rest in Him. That means we can rely on Him never being anything but good. And that's good news. If He were not good, if He were not perfect even one time, He would no longer be qualified to be God. But that's never anything we have to worry about. And so, there's nothing wrong with asking Him, why God, why? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why are you not doing anything about this or or that? When? When are you going to show up? When are you going to pour out your judgment and your justice? And let's just... Let's just be real. There's a lot of injustice in our world. We don't have to look far at all to see example after example of injustice. And so it's okay to ask Him, why? When? How long? But in in our asking and in our questioning, whether it's in a general way as we look at the world out there, or if it's a personal and intense thing that we're personally experiencing and we're struggling and we're, we're discouraged, and, and it feels as if our very soul is dying. I mean, there are times in our lives where we are stretched and, and pressed to the max, and we feel the weight of all that's coming down on us and all that we're experiencing. And, and it's okay to ask God why and when and how long. And He understands that. And, and friends, His shoulders are broad enough to carry even our intense questioning, and even our anger. But in all of that, we need to remember 
that he is sovereign and he is good. Perfectly so. We need to follow David's example. I love the Psalms, don't you? Where David is just so honest and real before God and his soul is just bared before him. And many, many times, many Psalms are full of why, how, when, God, when? Don't you care? Where are you, God? Why aren't you coming? How long will you forget us? Will you forget us forever? But in every single psalm, he comes back at the end to, but this I remember and therefore I have hope. God's good. He's good. All the time. In everything, he is good. He is perfectly sovereign, which means he's perfectly in control of all that comes our way, all that we see, all that we experience, even when it looks like there's no control, even when it looks like there's nothing but chaos, There is order, there is control, there is a point, and there is behind the scenes a beautiful picture, a beautiful tapestry being woven through all the details of our life and our world. There is one who is always on the throne. And it's important that we remember that, even as we ask why, when, how long, And that is certainly what these saints would have remembered, something that they would have fallen back onto, something they would have rested. And remember, they're they're perfect now, and they're in a perfect environment, and they would accept that answer much more and much easier than what we would here and now. And what they knew to be true and what they certainly would experience and have already experienced at this point as they are there in heaven is what Paul wrote and reminds all who are in Christ of. It's something that no doubt these saints who have been martyred would have recalled to their mind even as they were being martyred. This glorious truth and reality that Paul penned in Romans 8, 35-39, certainly it's a source of hope for us, and it's a source of hope for everyone who has faced the executioner as they are about to be martyred. Paul says this, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Certainly, these martyred saints knew what that was like. Experienced that. Verse 37 gives us the great resounding answer. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In verse 38, Paul says, For I am persuaded, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, and that's anything in life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's your hope, Christian. 
It's not in circumstance. It's not in situation. It's not in who occupies the seat of power of, of any sort of political group or the ruler of any nation or city or state. It's found in that unending truth and reality. The other source of comfort and encouragement, especially for those facing something like martyrdom, but also for you and me in all of our circumstances every day, the source of comfort and encouragement can be that God, and it should be, that God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget. We are forgetful people. (laughs) We all have very, very short memories. We're all like Israel. Okay, God, you came through on this, but what's next? We're like the people that experienced the feeding of the 5,000. Man, that was cool. That was a great lunch. Okay, Jesus, what are you going to show next to to show us that we should believe in you? (laughs) God doesn't forget. His justice is just as perfect as all of his other attributes are. Romans 12.19 points to that fact. The Apostle Paul writes there, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Have you heard uh, or seen, it's, it's old, it's not something that is necessarily current, I haven't seen it a lot, but I used to see it all the time, bumper stickers um, that said, I don't get mad, I get even. I always hated that bumper sticker. I mean, Let's just be honest, that's really dumb. That's just a really dumb statement. I mean, like, what does that get you? It gets you nowhere. And then it's just a cycle of mutual vengeance, right? And it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And man, what a terrible, scary thing that would be, right? To be on the receiving end of the vengeance of God. I mean, James says it's a a, a terrible and fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that was written to believers. Think about if you're not a believer, And you're on the receiving end of God's vengeance and His wrath and His justice. So, the Apostle Paul says, rightly so, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, church, what we need to remember, and it's really what what the martyred saints were hearing, what they were told to remember and to rest in, is this. God will honor His martyrs and judge their murderers in His perfect time. But the question still can be asked, okay, but why not right away? If He's going to do that, if He doesn't forget, His justice is just as perfect as all of His other attributes. If He's going to honor His martyrs and judge their murderers, okay, but why not right away? Why not now? That answer is given to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I just want to share that with you. Because it's a really good answer as to why not now. Why, why not yet? 
2 Peter 3.9. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting, not desiring, any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, clearly, that doesn't mean that all will come to repentance, and that's not what's being said. Saying that God's heart is for people to come to Him. God's heart is that He would see the very murderers of His martyred embracing and accepting His mercy, turning to His mercy. That's His heart. God's heart is not one of His heart is not one of vengeance. He will carry out vengeance, but that's not His heart. His heart is one of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And His desire is that people would turn from sin, turn from their hatred of Him and of His people, and turn to Him instead. And He delays His vengeance and He delays His judgment so that more will come to Him. So that more will accept and embrace a repentant heart and a repentant life. And they'll become, instead of being a murderer of the martyred, willing to be martyred themselves for Him. You see, church, we need to remember and we need to believe, I mean really believe, the truth powerful, unchanging truth that Jesus can change a persecutor into a follower. Jesus can do that. He's done it before. I mean, there's no better example of that fact than the Apostle Paul. The one who, as Saul, persecuted the followers of the way, the early church, almost to extinction. But then became the church's loudest and, the, and the, the Savior's loudest supporter and most faithful servant. And that is by no means a, a, a one-time example. That is by no means limited to Paul. What Jesus did with Paul, He can, He has done, and He can do again and again and again. And we need to believe that. And that begs this question for all of us. What do we really believe? What do we really believe at our core? How sufficient is the Savior's work? I mean, how do, how do we really believe that? How do we really see it? How sufficient do we really think the Savior's work is? Is it sufficient enough to even reach into the life of a persecutor, the life of one who hates Jesus and all of His people, do we really believe that His work on the cross is sufficient enough for that person? How far can the Gospel reach? What would we say, really, when pressed to the, to the farthest? What do we really believe about that? Can the Gospel reach into a terrorist's heart and mind? Could Adolf Hitler... Mussolini, Osama bin Laden, could they have been reached by the gospel and responded to it 
Do we really believe it? And how powerful do we think the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is? I mean, really, how powerful is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to us? Do we really believe it knows no, no bounds, His work? Do we really believe His power will surpass every possible limitation? Do we really believe even the, the strongest resistance can be overcome by the Spirit's work? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves. These are questions we have to come to terms with and come to grips with. And we have to believe that God is faithful, that He doesn't forget, that He will do what He says He will do, and that despite His heart being one of grace and mercy and forgiveness, despite the fact that He desires that vengeance won't have to be visited because there will be mass repentance, we we do have to remember and take seriously the fact that He will still bring vengeance. And the next verse tells us that. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us why he delays, but 2 Peter 3.10 assures us that he will not delay forever. And that is a serious thing. 2 Peter 3.10 tells us this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed or revealed, and then consequently judged. That will happen. And that's something that John actually sees the start of and sees what that is going to look like, and he, he witnessed that as the sixth seal was opened. The sixth seal. And that's recorded by John in Revelation 6, 12-17. The fifth seal has now been opened. He saw the martyrs. He sees the sixth seal. Verse 12. Then I saw him, speaking of Jesus again, the only one worthy to open the seals. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. All of this definitely seems similar to what happens when a nuclear arsenal is unleashed. doesn't mean it has to be. It could be entirely um, something else. It could be just astronomical phenomenon. Certainly God is capable of doing that. He commands the stars. He holds everything together. And whenever He wants, Jesus personally can just let go of all that. And all this could happen. So I'm not saying it has to be you know, nuclear attacks and nuclear holocaust, but it certainly fits. It certainly fits what happens when nuclear weapons are used. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. So whether it ends up being that or something entirely different, that really is pretty irrelevant. The point is, this is going to be catastrophic. 
absolutely catastrophic. Unparalleled destruction. Verse 15, as a result of all this happening, in response, here's what takes place among the people of the earth. Verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person. So that's, I mean, that's everybody. It crosses all boundaries, all of the segments and, and different parts of society. They're all affected. They're all in the same boat. All the ground has now been level. All these people... Here's what they did. They hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the One seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It's a good question. Really, there's only one answer. That's given to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, my friends, only those truly in Christ have any ground to stand on, and that ground is only the ground of Calvary. That's the only thing that makes them able to stand. And only in Christ can we have any hope of standing against or, or apart from the great judgment of God. He is our only hope. He's our only escape. Now, there is a break between seal 6 and 7 in the, in the text in Scripture. Revelation 7 introduces the 144,000 of God's chosen people that are specially sealed and protected from the rest of of the tribulation judgments. And it also features the rest of the martyred that are talked about in chapter 6, verse 11. When, when the saints got their answer, how long, how long before you, you avenge our blood? And Jesus said, rest a little while longer until the number is completed. We just looked at that, remember? You guys remember with me? Okay, so chapter 7 shows us the 144,000 of Israel and it also features the rest of the tribulation martyred all praising God and giving Him glory and receiving white robes like the others had, praising Him in heaven, receiving their reward. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It'd be, it'd be worthy of your, of your study and your time. But what I want to do is go ahead and move ahead to uh, seal 7, the last of the seals. Seal 7. And that's found in Revelation 8. And I'm going to focus in on verses 1 through 5. The seventh seal. When the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who does take away the sin of the world, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, a half hour isn't that long in itself, right? I mean, that's nothing. It goes by very quickly. But it can seem and feel like a very, very long time, depending on what's going on at the time. For example, me up here. If I were to suddenly just stop preaching and just remain completely silent for 
as little as 10 minutes, or even for five minutes. I mean, it would feel like an eternity, right? I mean, if I just stopped and said nothing else for 10 minutes, five minutes, it would get awkward and uncomfortable really fast, like you'd be thinking, what's going on? Has he had a stroke? Is he overcome by emotion? Did he forget everything he was going to say? What's going on? I mean, you'd be kind of like, okay, let's move along here. Well, think about heaven. I mean, we know from our time in this book already, particularly Revelation chapter 4, that heaven is a place of constant praise and worship. I mean, joyful shouting and celebrating all that God is and all that He has done and celebrating the work of Christ. I mean, you've got the angels, the seraphim, that never cease to cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you've got all the elders falling down and worshiping. I mean, it's a happening place. We're not just sitting there in silence Strumming you know, harps. No, we're, heaven is a scene of joyful praise and celebration and, and very pure, righteous partying. I mean, it is. You don't have to take my word for it. It's in the Word. But at this point, at this point, nothing. Total silence for about half an hour. Earth time, anyway. Earth time. So however long it actually lasted, this silence most likely is due to all of heaven being in awe. Being in absolute awe. Just awestruck. All of heaven. Why? Why would they be in awe? I think that they are likely in awe of seeing and witnessing the judgments that have already happened, you know, as each seal is opened. But also, I think it's kind of a breathless anticipation about the even more severe trumpet judgments that are getting ready to come. Now that the seals are off and the scroll can be fully opened, what comes next is the trumpet judgments, which are then preceded by the bowl judgments, and then the end comes. Then the glorious appearing happens. Glorious appearing of Jesus, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. In verse 2 shows that that's about to all transpire. So the silence in heaven all the celebration and the praise and the worship just stops. Verse 2, John says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The full judgment of God, the wrath of God and the Lamb, the vengeance is finally coming. 
But in all of this, oh, in, in all of this, in all that we've seen, in all that comes next, in those trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, which we collectively are not going to focus on, I'm going to, to move ahead to the end of all of that after all that has transpired. Uh, but it, I certainly would encourage you to, to look at those next chapters in the book and see all those details. And as you do, and whenever you do that, in all of that, in all that judgment, in all that calamity and chaos, church, we cannot forget God's heart in all of that. And His heart is described for us perhaps nowhere better in the Old Testament at least than Ezekiel 33.11 where God says to the prophet Ezekiel, As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn away from his way and live. That he should turn from his wickedness, his rebellion, his sin, and live. And as with so many things, we see this powerfully pictured in a very personal way in Jesus Himself. Matthew 23, 37, very close to the point of Him going to the cross, He says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he followed that up by saying, See, Israel, your house is left to you desolate. And he wept. No, don't ever see in your mind the face of God as he's dealing out judgment and vengeance as having this twisted, pleasure-filled grin on it. No, church, child of God, see the face of God whenever judgment is given as a face full of brokenness and sorrow. And that should be our heart as well. My challenge to you is to take all of this seriously and to do what God told Ezekiel as as he went on. He said, you, you who are mine, you warn the wicked of his wicked way. Go and warn them. We need to do the same thing. We need to take the time that is left. However long that time is, I mean, we don't know. We don't know how all of this is going to unfold and, and, and how it's all going to start or when it's all going to start. We don't know that. We're never told that. We need to have a true heart of love for the sinner, the lost, the wicked. We, we should not have a heart of, oh yeah, I can't wait till you get what's coming to you. No, that should not be anywhere in the heart of the believer. Rather, like our God, like our Savior, our heart should break for the lost. And we should love them enough to warn them of the reality that awaits them if they continue to be unrepentant. 
and in all that we experience around us and in us, as we say why, how, when, how long, we need to come back to remembering God is sovereign and God is good. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your heart that is so clearly revealed in and and throughout your word. Even in judgment, even in wrath, your heart is shown and it's a heart that breaks every time judgment is given. May that be our heart as well. May we not rejoice in the death of the wicked. Rather, may we take the time that we have before you call us home, before all of the things that we've already seen to this point in Revelation, before all that transpires and comes down, let us redeem the time knowing that the days are evil. And let us be the ambassadors for Christ that we are called to be. Let us take seriously and take responsibility for the Great Commission. Let us warn the wicked of their wicked way and point them to the only source of rescue that they have, the same Savior that died for us, that He died for them. May your heart be our heart. And Father, as we wait for You, as we wait for Your Son, help us to wait well. Help us to love You well, to worship You well, to serve You well. And help us to remember and really believe that in all things you are sovereign, perfectly so, and you are perfectly good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.